0: This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father father, farmer, father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of. Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliza. Eliza, the father of Manhattan. Looks like Manhattan. It's not. It's Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. (laughs) Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Bench! Great work.
1: Thought we'd start the new year off with a bang. Really sad announcement, followed by a list of names. That's it. Bow your heads, close your eyes, let's take communion. Uh, I, I, how many of you have made a resolution to read the Bible in a whole year at any point in your life? Okay, so over here we've got a lot of Bible readers on this side, <laughs> this side not as much. Um, my guess is if it wasn't this year and, and you don't have the hope that it might work this time, uh, you gave up somewhere in a genealogy. There are genealogies and numbers that go on for days, and you just sort of like trail off and zone out and you 're like, all right i'm going to go do something else." Um, we normally skip over there's a man named salmon it's a man named zadok Ram what What is God trying to say? Parents used to be cruel what what? But seriously, what does it mean that the New Testament begins with a list of names? You had 400 years of silence since the end of the prophet Malachi, 400 years. First thing God's going to say, first thing, written word of God, how would you start? Oh, Jesus, you've heard of him. Well, I was there. Let me tell you, he was amazing. Now settle in for a story. Something like that? No. Matthew is putting forward an official document to show the pedigree of this man Jesus who's claiming to be the Messiah of Israel. It's in uh, the historical record now. This is. Uh, Israel is a nation that uh, is, is, was founded with this promise to Abraham that he was going to bless the whole world, but it, that it was going to happen through his family line. And so genealogies are incredible, incredibly important to the people of Israel, and so Matthew's beginning this testimony about Jesus, this story of Israel's Messiah, saying, let me show you where he comes from. His birth lineage has promise attached to it. He must be to be Messiah from a certain line, a certain people to whom God has made these ancient promises. But then you get into the names and there's more to them than them just sounding strange. If you spend time looking at this list, some some unexpected realities emerge. And I think they point us towards a few things that are are really helpful uh, for us, especially as we're starting uh, a new new year. Uh, Catholic uh, sociologist Charles Taylor has asserted, and he's not the the only one, many have have said this, that our our world over the last 500 years or so has kind of gone through this process of disenchantment. with the uh, Enlightenment, the scientific re- revolution, that more and more we're figuring out how things work, and so we don't need magic in the world anymore. And for many of us, we say, yeah, we celebrate that. That's the, the, the lifting up of, of, of reason. And uh, of course, it's an incredible thing, but what, what else have we lost on this trajectory of disenchantment? <laughs> what do you lose when the world loses magic? Um, if we've been systematically stripping <laughs> The world, as we, as through technological advancement, we become more and more self sufficient. What what do we lose? In a sense, as people over the last generations, we kind of have said we can take it from here. Uh, you know, Google is going to solve death. They said, "Thanks, Google." Um, we don't need the early and latter rains anymore. We've got factories. We don't need God's help to understand our lives. We know how things work now. I don't need to sit beside the Grand Canyon and wonder at its majesty. I'm going to snap a selfie of myself and post it to Instagram and move along. So, for many of us, uh, this makes believing in God hard, the disenchantment of the world. But it also leaves us with all these unanswered longings in our heart because we long for something transcendent, but we're told from early on that it's not there except in fairy tales. And uh, that's really challenging for us to to make sense of. I love what Philip Yancey says says about this. Um, He's one of those authors. uh, Charles Taylor says, uh, many people who believe are tempted to doubt. And many people who doubt are tempted to believe, and you might feel like you fit in one of those two uh, categories. But Philip Yancey is a believer who is tempted by doubt, and so he's incredibly helpful for us. Um, but he says, uh, eliminating the sacred changes the story of our lives. In times of greater faith, people saw themselves as individual creations of a loving God, who, regardless of how it may look at any given moment, has final control over a world destined for restoration. Now, people with no faith find themselves lost and alone, with no ar- no overarching story or meta narrative to give promise to the future and meaning to the present. To regard nature as beautiful, humans as uniquely valuable, morality as necessary—these are mere constructs we are told, invented to soften the harsh reality that humans play an in- infinitesimal role in a universe governed by chance. We are just a series of genetic code in a world governed by chance. And yet, we fall in love, and we write songs, and we cry when our friends move away, and it doesn't feel like that's everything. Maybe this tells us something, we've learned something about how we got here or how our bodies work, but we can't answer why. And that's a whole different set of questions. And so... God begins this process of telling the good news of Jesus the Messiah in an effort, I believe, to re-enchant the world, to say, there will be magic. There will be mystery. There will be majesty. You won't be able to explain it all. But uh, he does it in an interesting way. (laughs) He's saying emphatically uh, with this list of names, that there is there is hope for humanity, that God knows the whole story, he's traced his line along the historical path, and he's breaking in. He's breaking in to repair and restore the world, to say there will be magic, there will be hope. But our hope is rooted in history. It's not just a fairy tale. It It, it includes real people with real issues, with real stories. This is truth in history. We just celebrated Christmas. We're actually technically still in tide here as we're going to be, begin Epiphany next week. Um, Matthew's genealogy is saying truth is encountering history in the person of God. I, love, I like what Tim Keller says about this. He's helpful, um, but he's all the way across the river, so he should stay at our church. Um, <laughs> jokes. This is so foundational, so fundamental. God has done something in history. That's the reason, yeah, God has done something in history. That's the reason why Matthew does not begin his story about the birth of Christ in verse 18. In other words, Matthew does not begin the story of Jesus' birth once upon a time. He doesn't say once upon a time because he wants to make sure that you and I know this is, is not a story. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. This is reality. He puts Jesus in history. He says this was a historical event. Christmas is about historical events. Christianity does not declare, now there is something consenting adults can do in the privacy of their own lives that brings them peace and comfort. No, Christianity declares God has done something in history. He has broken in. Certain historical events have happened and how you respond to them will be the basis on which you rise or fall. Christianity says God has broken into history. He has done something in history that changes everything and you will be judged on the basis of how you respond to it. It's so easy in our time to be obsessed with ourselves, to be obsessed with our given moment, to not conceive of history. But each of the people on this list each of them lived full lives. They were people of passion and desires and hopes and longings and thrilling moments and dull days. And we're going to see as we just explore a couple of their life stories that there were beautiful expressions of love in their lives and there were terrible choices that brought about immense pain in their lives. And into that history, God is saying, I'm showing up. I'm choosing to identify myself with you. That's very interesting that God's chooses to identify himself through relationship with people. He doesn't show up and say, I'm the God of gods, as he could could say. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, Jacob, these flawed people, these broken people. From that stream of reality, God is breaking into the world. So Matthew begins by saying this is a historically credible event that you can trace history back to see the reality of, of, of from whence it came. And, and you can know the life stories of these people. And if this is a true account and there are credible reasons for believing that it's, it's a true account, then then it changes everything. Then this person who we're talking about, Jesus, could actually say something like, I'm bringing resources for hope that transcend any generation. John Leith says, Some some may say the incarnation is not true, but no one can say that it is trivial. If it is true, it is the greatest good news that ever came to human beings on this planet. Those who heard it for the first time called it news, more than that good news. Human existence and the world itself are not meaningless happenings, but the expression of purpose, of of intentionality, and above all, of intelligibility and love, which have been made known in Jesus Christ." Matthew's saying, trace your hand along the ridge of history, along the smooth and jagged edges of real lives, and recognize God is breaking in, so there is hope. Another reality buried in this list is that God is a God of immense grace. He's telling a story through humanity, through our lives, of immense grace the beauty of this list is it says this is not just a story for elite insiders who are given some secret key. This is a story of grace beyond deserving, and it includes everyone that you might think is an outsider. Now, you, you might not uh, immediately catch this if you just, as modern readers, hear this gene- genealogy read, but there's some scandal in it, and it's intentionally there, and it would have Definitely scandalize its original readers. I've I've talked about this before, but each of the four gospel accounts are telling the story of Jesus, and yet we have it from four different angles. And we talked as we were going in Advent through the gospel of Luke, that Luke was this Gentile uh, doctor, and he's writing to a nobleman to explain, hey, you've heard all these things about Jesus. Let me explain to you how the Holy Spirit was using what Jesus came to do and and spilling over the banks of, of Israel to encounter people like you and to bring you in. So Luke themes in the gospel of Luke that are in all of them that are especially emphasized in Luke are the Holy Spirit and the ministry to the Gentiles and this two-part book of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke and Acts were written together. Well, Matthew's gospel in particular was written to a Jewish audience, a re-establishment of the Torah. It's a book in five parts. It's, uh, it includes the narrative of Jesus's life that Mark and Luke would have included, but then it has these longer sections of teaching where Jesus is saying, here's the new constitution for the kingdom of God. In the same way that the Torah was the constitution for the people of God. And so Matthew does something that would have scandalized that exact audience. So you're like, why would you put these people off right at the start? Because we have to see that this is a new way of doing things. That God is building his kingdom with immense grace. So um, you would never... (laughs) If you were in Matthew's shoes, and you were trying to create credibility for the movement of Christianity, you would never include some of the people that you include in this list. And the first thing to notice is that there's women in it. And for us, that's very easy, because like, women give birth, so if you're going to do a genealogy, you should probably include them. Um, but at this time, um, ancient... Uh, ancient. Um, Genealogies, for the most part, left women out, especially um, if that woman might have tarnished the family name. And yet, uh, Matthew does exactly the opposite. Just going to give you the list of women. Uh, Tamar was a Canaanite who, who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to, in order to seduce Judah all right? That's where we're starting. First woman on the list. Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute um, who lied to protect the Israelite spies and helped overthrow Jericho. Now, there's a couple of troubling things there. One, the Israelites are coming to overtake Jericho, and yet somehow they find themselves in a prostitute's house, and she hides them from uh, people who, who are looking for, her, for them, and Rahab's name is in the list. Ruth was a Moabite woman who only moved to Israel upon the death of her husband. Uh, Bathsheba, you remember Bathsheba? She was taking a bath, King David saw, brings her into the house, uh, sleeps with her, has her husband... My friend's leaving, it's hard for me to talk this morning, okay? Has her husband killed. So women... (laughs) What you need to hear is everyone that you would have thought would be left out. Even Mary, Mary at the end, right? She's about to have this child through very unusual, scandalous circumstances. But not just women, Gentiles. Now, the Orthodox Jews of that time wanted nothing to do with what they called the Gentile dogs. Remember, um, uh, there's this scandal where Jesus is walking through a part of, uh, through Samaria, and he encounters this woman, uh, and he's not supposed to be talking to her at all because the Jews would walk all the way around Samaria in order to avoid people that they were even half Gentile. And so uh, the Orthodox uh, Jews of the time that we're very careful not to walk in the places where Gentiles have been walking, lest they touch something that a Gentile would touch, making them ritually unclean and unfit for the presence of God. Yet here in the midst of the genealogy of the king of the Jews and the king of the universe are these Gentiles, a Canaanite woman, Moabites, those who are on the wrong side of the Jordan. Why? Why include these people? Because Jesus is proud of them, (laughs) proud that they are his people, Proud of people with the wrong pedig- pedigree, proud of people with the wrong nationality, proud of people with the wrong race. So we got women and Gentiles, and also another classic sinners. Tamar, right? Uh, this prostitute had a child, and the Messiah of Israel comes through that through that union. It was in, an incestuous relationship. Tamar was Judah's sister, and not only is Tamar in there, but God chooses to bring the Messiah through there. Matthew brings it out. He highlights that. Rahab was a prostitute, but she wasn't just a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. And Jericho, and God puts her in the line of the Messiah, David and Bathsheba. Jacob, who all the children of Israel are born from, he begins his life as a a thief. He schemes his brother out of his birthright. He is a liar and a cheat. So what can we say about that it's pretty hopeful for me that god is not interested in whitewashing the brokenness of this world this list is showing that god can bring grace through the horror of human history through our very worst mistakes I love the, I love the new year because I love to make uh, resolutions and promises of doing things better. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I said this before we prayed for Zach and Stacy. I'm really glad 2015 is over. Uh, it was one of the hardest years of my life, and there were points points of it in December where I just turned to people that I love and I said, "I've never been more tired." physically, emotionally, spiritually. I've never felt like I had to work myself up to come and talk about God like I did this past year. I've never felt like, man, I'm past some of these selfish choices that I've made that have tripped me up before and then to stumble back into them and, and be trying to sort that out with, with people who love me, with my wife who's taught me more about grace, uh even in this year than than I ever thought possible, it's so helpful for me to know that God doesn't want to whitewash the brokenness of the world. That he's saying, I'm bringing my kingdom through this. And if grace is real, if this immense grace is real, then who you are right now, does not have to be who you are tomorrow or who you are at the end of this service? If grace is real, it means that we can change because it means that God doesn't work based on what we deserve. He's working off another calculation, (laughs) something else. Why does God unashamedly include these people who don't deserve to be in the list that Messiah comes through? Because he is ready to call every single one of us family. And because every single one of us have thousands of reasons why we don't belong, why we feel excluded, why we're, we're not good enough. Even if we've gotten really good at sort of Uh, demonstrating our pedigree to the world. We know in our inner being, (laughs) we're in need. I'm so glad God is not interested in whitewashing the brokenness of the world, but he's saying I'm gonna bring my kingdom through it because my kingdom is a kingdom of grace. And I'm not gonna look at your life and say, does it add up? I'm gonna say, Jesus has fulfilled everything necessary. This line of promise and all of its jagged, twisting lines has been coming to this moment where God says, I'm stepping into the world to bring you salvation. It's the last thing this list shows us is a promise of salvation that's, a, that's available. It's important for me as a pastor who talks about grace all the time to remember that at the beginning of, of a year where uh, I, I just want to, I want God to bless me because of how much I'm promising to be better. You got to bless me, God, because this is my year. I, just real, I did realize this. 2014 was a great year, 2015, not so much. I think maybe I'm an even year guy. <laughs> I'll just okay, check back in with me in 2017. My, I might, you know, I'm also taking applications for new best friends, so um, <laughs> just kidding. Friendship transcends state lines. We got the internet. There's this promise of salvation. And the, the genealogy, this list of names that we've probably skipped over, like, when God does something, it's full of intricacy and beauty and detail. It's, it's full of, of majesty and wonder. It's full of, uh, he, he organized time for us. He, he, you know, you look at down to the molecular level of our world, and it's in, intensely intricate and detailed. You look at the, 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 the out, you take a telescope, there's a guy who's on 7th Ave, or, or at the 7th Avenue stop on the F train, and if you come up at the right time, he'll be there with a huge telescope. You can look into space, and the majesty and wonder of space. Do you think he didn't know what he was doing when he started the New Testament with a list of names? we 're supposed to pause we 're supposed to wonder we 're supposed to say, what is this trying to say to us? The new kingdom <laughs> the kingdom of God breaking into the world is, is, is bringing this promise of salvation through radical acceptance <laughs> by which God says to those who think they 're the furthest away you 're mine. I embrace you with my love Jesus is." in and establishing a way to get to god a religious system we've said this before he's saying i am the way i'm going to accomplish your salvation without your help i'll say that one more time church jesus comes in and says i'm going to accomplish your salvation without your help this is the incarnation god in human flesh god in a manger god in the manure god showing up to shepherds to marginal people why why do we care well they were in the presence of god And in the list of incest and adultery and prostitution and paganism, he says, come to me and I will wipe it out. What is your list? The thing that you're keeping hidden. He says, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'll put you in the list. I'll put you in my family line. You'll be part of the family of God. I'm proud of you. Hebrews 2 says, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed to call us family. What would your year look like if you lived knowing that the God of the universe said, I am not ashamed to call you family? How on earth does he do do that? Because of his incredible love for us, Jesus has accomplished our adoption. He's accomplished our salvation without our help. I'm going to read you, even though it's a, it's a little bit long, and it'll basically be the last thing that we do as we pr- prepare to go to communion, I just want to read you a, an extended section from Hebrews where that phrase, he's not ashamed to call us family, comes from. Just let this kind of wash over you a little. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. And yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone else. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone else. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Making the pioneer, Jesus, of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. And the children, God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. I'm gonna read that just one more time. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who for all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And in this list, we have Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you know what it's like to be tempted? <laughs> to be enticed to just look out for yourself. To live with a sense of entitlement. I deserve this way of finding rest. I deserve this way of finding entertainment. I've worked hard. We have a high priest who has in every way been tempted like we are and yet can embrace us. He's chosen to identify himself with us to make us family. So what are the implications as we go to the table? One, 2015 is in the past, and so is every other year you've ever lived. How do we relate to our past? One, look at how God relates to his, in, in a sense, in this, in this list. He does, not, he does not say that the bad parts didn't happen. He doesn't say that the ugly, broken parts aren't there. He says, I'm bringing my kingdom through it anyway. My, my kingdom triumphs. Like As powerful as sin and brokenness is, my love covers a multitude of sins. My love triumphs over that. Brokenness does not stop God from using us. It enables his grace to flow through us. So as a church community, what does that mean for us in 2016? That we move away from judgmentalism. (laughs) That we say we will be a house of mercy. That we will be a house of welcome. That we will be a house of love. Along the terms of Jesus. What does it mean for our achievements, our our pedigree? (laughs) That we... Our, our, our city, our world, our culture says we have to spend time crafting in order to find value. The opening words of the new covenant say you can be family no matter where you started, no matter what you've done. Jesus is a savior, he's not a teacher. <laughs> I mean, he's both, but he's, he's a savior, not just a teacher. He's come to rescue us, not to reform us through uh, Moral rehabilitation He's here to accomplish our salvation And there's no way for us to earn it So That's how I wanted to start 2016 Is you hearing That Jesus is your rest I need to hear that Because 2015 was awful In some ways I mean I had a child That was a super big highlight Champ I'm a big fan of my Fourth baby Uh, He's great And there were some other good things that happened But 2015 as a whole Really tough And my instinct is to ramp up my willpower, to make myself an exercise plan, to go out and do better. And I think the pathway to actually living more fully who I am, more fully who you are, is that we begin by resting in what Jesus has done. We begin by realizing he's accomplished our salvation without our help, that he's come through all the brokenness of our world, to say you're mine. I love you. You're my sons and daughters. I'm giving you a meal so you never forget how much you're loved. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And even if it starts with a strange list of names, those names are saying something to us. No matter what, you can be family. Come embrace and be embraced by Jesus. Let's start our year resting in his arms you guys know the story of Mary and Martha, right? Jesus comes to their house and Martha's got her resolutions <laughs> and she's doing better and she's fixing the house and she's, she's working hard for Jesus. She's doing all this work for Jesus and her sister Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha gets mad because that's what happens when people are just working out of their own strength and willpower and they see someone else not achieving the way they are. That they, they, they feel superior and then they feel bothered by it and so Martha says, Jesus, tell her to help me. And he says, ah, Martha. Martha, Mary's chosen the best, and it won't be taken from her. She's sitting at my feet. She's resting in my presence. Now, from there, is that, is that rest a life of inactivity? Absolutely not. We, are, we live in New York. We're going to have full and active lives, but will those lives be birthed out of sitting at Jesus' feet and him saying, go here, go there? Like, what Martha's making the bed, she doesn't know if Jesus is staying, she's making food, she doesn't know if he's hungry, and Mary's sitting at his feet, and from that place, she can be led by the Spirit, and in the same, same way as we rest in Jesus' presence, his Spirit leads us. He knows every day of this year, he knows what will restore your soul. Let me pray for you, and then we'll go to the table. Heavenly Father, we cannot save and rescue ourselves, and so we receive all that Jesus is and has accomplished for us. And we cannot restore our souls or refresh our spirits or renew our minds, and so we receive all that the Holy Spirit has for us this year because of what Jesus has accomplished. Because of what Jesus has accomplished, you say we can be temples of your Holy Spirit. We can rest in your presence every day. Would you help us as, an in, as individuals and as a church to rest on Christ this year? Would you show us the different ways we are meant to respond to your love this morning? Speak, Holy Spirit. Show us how to respond to your love. In Christ's name, amen. I'll give you a few moments to pray and reflect Um, to edit your New Year's resolutions and then uh, we'll go to the table together and then worship. This is strange for you. Just take these moments and pray as honestly as you can to God in the silence.